This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. One thing we all have in common is every single one of us comes from a family, some form, some fashion of a family. Uh, There's varying relationships that are good and uh, tenuous and a lot of tension at times, a lot of joy at times. Regardless of our family histories and the relationships we may have with family, we all can connect on this one truth. We come from family. God has ordained that human life begins within the construct of some sort of family. And God uses language throughout the Old and the New Testament to describe families, to describe the importance of family. He even defines us as as being in relationship with him in the ways that we relate to a family. One thing that's always been true about family, especially when families are close, is that families are expected to have each other's back, to come to each other's defense. I'm the oldest of four, and there's three boys, and the youngest is a girl. And one of the things that we always knew was that even if we are beefing with each other, right, even if we have real animosity with each other, even if we are fighting, yelling, screaming, or what have you, we may not like each other. But the one thing we will never allow is someone else to come in or somebody from without to actually harm any of us. Even if we were at each other's throats, the one thing we knew is that if somebody came for one of my younger siblings, we all banded together to protect them. We all banded together to come to their defense, to come to their aid, because family sticks together. Family loves one another, albeit imperfectly, but we always love one another. We always show up for one another. God calls us into those types of relationships. God not only calls us into relationships as families, but he holds us accountable for the times when we fail to act as family. He holds us accountable to to strengthen the ties of family, to strengthen the ties of relationships with our fellow image bearers, and he holds us accountable when we break those family ties. One of the places in scripture that really plays this out is a very unlikely place. It's a place that you likely have not spent a lot of time. I had not spent a lot of time. And so I'm thankful as we go through this series on the minor prophets that we've been able to land on the book of Obadiah. Now, Obadiah might really just seem like the kind of name that people in the 1800s would name a child, maybe. But we rarely, if at all, have spent any time digging into this prophecy. And it can be hard, right? Because the first trick of Obadiah is finding the thing. We have the time if we're using a regular Bible and not clicking through. It can be hard to find this because it's a very small chapter. As a matter of fact, it's the smallest book of the Old Testament. It's only 21 verses. So if somebody says Obadiah 10, they're not saying Obadiah chapter 10, just Obadiah verse 10. You can quickly skip over it and not even know that it's there. Again, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, so you can skip it. You can miss it. One of the things, too, is that Obadiah is the only book, one of the only books, if not the only book in the Old Testament, that does not address directly the Jewish people. It's addressed directly to a non-Jewish nation, to a Gentile nation, to the people of Edom. 
And that's going to come up as very significant as we get towards the end of this sermon. The next thing that's, that can be difficult when reading through Obadiah is the tendency that we have to judge things with our eyes, to judge things with our sight. And Obadiah does not judge or cast this prophecy using his own vision. He's using God's vision. What do I mean by this? Well, let's just think about how we determine who the winners are in a situation, who, who the people are that are the leaders in a situation. Who are the soldiers in the street after a war? What flags are flying over the Capitol buildings after a war? Whose language is spoken after the war? After World War II, if uh, our streets were lined with German or Japanese flags, or we were speaking German or the Japanese language, it would be very obvious who the winner was of that war. That's how our vision works, right? I can tell who's winning. I can tell who's at the top by who has the most. I can tell you the winners and the losers. And further, since I already know who the winners are, I can tell you who I admire or who we want to emulate and the people that we want to avoid and that we pity. How do we tell that? Well, we can look at again, who's winning? What language is there? What flags are there? Or even on a personal level, uh, how much stuff do they have? The size of their cars, the, the amount of boats, the amount of jewelry. This, uh, this, this, this doesn't really, this isn't something that's foreign to us. Because ultimately what we're really saying is, who seems to have the most glory? The Hebrew word for glory is this word kavad. And kavad carries several meanings. But one of the meanings for that word kavad, translated glory, is weightiness or heaviness. We want to know who the heavies are, because the ones who seem to have the most weight behind them, they're worthy of the most glory. That's our vision. That's how we see things. Whoever looks like the winner, those are the ones we want to be. It's one of the reasons why that word weightiness, uh, oftentimes when people were wealthy and, and were better off, they would actually turn, end up becoming overweight because they could overindulge and they would have so much stuff that the heaviness would become this overweightness, right? They had the big cars. They had the big boats. They had all the clothing. And I know we'd like to think that we would never judge this way, right? We would never be this shallow, but conspicuous consumption is the way the world judges. That's the way we all judge. This has to do with our sight. This has to do with how we see and what we look for. Look, advertising bears this out, right? How, what makes me want to patronize a certain company or to buy a certain product? Their job is to convince me that I will have more weight by having this product. I will have more weight if I go to this particular business, I'll have more weight if I dress the way that person on the screen is, or if I move the way that person on the screen is, or if I alter my body the way that person on the screen is. That's how we look at who the winners are. And we do the same thing. That sales method is used for politicians, for businesses, and sadly, even for churches. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because this is where Jerusalem found themselves when they had been overtaken by Babylon. Obadiah is written during this time where people 
If you used your vision, if you used your own sight, you would see Jerusalem, the Jews, as the losers and Babylon as the winners. And anybody who was uh, in, in cahoots with Babylon, they were the winners. And the Jews, Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, they were the losers. If you just used your eyes, you would clearly see they were the losers. How do we know this? Jerusalem had been defeated by Babylon in 6 BC. Babylon, this great wealthy power, this, this, this world power. So much so, we've heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon. Their weightiness was on display. They were uh, uh, engineering geniuses and they had had all of the arts on display and they had all of this wealth and all of this power. So much so that when they overtook Jerusalem, they came and they plundered and they raised it to the ground. Not raise, R-A-I-S-E, but R-A-Z-E, raised it to the ground, completely destroyed it, nothing left. Jerusalem is left in, in ruins, and in, in this defeat, Babylon had a lot of friends. Babylon had a lot of allies. Judah and Jerusalem had no friends. Yet another sign of a winner and a loser, right? People who we look at as winners, they've got all the social connections. They've got all the most followers. They've got all the friends. They've got all the comments and the likes. They look like winners. And the ones who don't seem to have much don't have people to vouch for them, don't have people to advocate for them, don't have people to defend them. They're the losers. So Israel, Judah, they are the losers in this story. They've been decimated. They've been overtaken. And they're looking at Babylon with all of these friends. And one of Babylon's friends was a country, the small state of Edom. This is who this letter, this prophecy is directed toward. So as we read Obadiah, just 21 verses, I want you to think about how God is talking to this other nation, right? He's not talking to the uh, nation of Israel. He's talking to Edom. And we'll talk about who Edom was in a minute, but he's talking to Edom, this friend of Babylon, this ally of Babylon. And God is really gonna show the way in which he holds Edom responsible for breaking a family tie. He holds them responsible for not loving and caring when they should have. Let's read. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us go to war against her. Look. I will make you insignificant among the nations. You will be deeply despised. Your arrogant heart has deceived you. You will live in clefts of the rock in your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there, I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, wouldn't they leave some grapes? How Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it 
And that day, this is the Lord's declaration. Will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Taman, your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. You will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. Do not enter my people's city gate in the day of, the of their disaster. Yes, you. Do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster. And do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives. And do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. This is the house of Jacob. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire and the house of Joseph a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. People from the, the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau, and those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin will possess Gilead, the exiles of the Israelites who are in Hala and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau's, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot in this, right? It's only 21 verses, but there's so much uh, to extract when you look at the heart of God and what he calls, what he calls all of us into, the relationships that he holds us accountable for what it means to really be family, what it means to care about others when they are in distress, specifically here because we have a, a, a sibling rivalry of sorts between two people groups that have been uh, uh, at each other's necks, if you will, for centuries. So you can see this when you look at, uh, even at verse 11, on the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Here's what we're seeing about Obadiah's vision here. Obadiah's vision isn't based on sight. It's based on the vision of God. What that means is Obadiah sees Edom and sees Edom's sin and sees Edom's judgment. He doesn't look for who's winning or losing uh, for along the conventional lines of, of the day, right? He looks at them and says, I'm seeing you the way God sees you. That's always the prophet's job. And frankly, that's the Christian's job. Our job should always be, I'm going to see things the way God sees them. Not the way the world sees them. Not the way the culture sees them. I'm going to see them the way God sees them. 
And so Obadiah is focusing on this nation, Edom. He already has shown, I'm going to focus on Edom's sin and God's judgment for Edom's sin. So we have to ask the question, who was Edom? What exactly was Edom's sin? Who is this nation, Edom? Well, at the time, Edom is this nation that's directly south of the Dead Sea. It's south of Palestine. It stretches from the Dead Sea all the way to the northern tip of the Red Sea. And uh, it, today, it's, it's Jordan. If you've ever been to a trip to Palestine and you've ever gotten a chance to travel around, you get a chance to see a little bit of Jordan. Uh, Jordan is where Edom was. That is where Edom had made their land. That's where their country was, a small little kind of country state. And Edom was there just south of Israel. And more importantly than where this nation was, we have to figure out who this nation was. Edom was a nation of people that were descendants of a man named Esau. Edom was uh, a group, we see this in, in verses six and eight, right? Verse six, how Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasure searched out. Verse eight, and that day, this is the Lord's declaration. Will I, not, will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom? Now, when you read Hebrew, Hebrew often uses parallelism just like this. They will say the same thing in two different ways. Ultimately, what he's showing you is that Esau is Edom. Many times throughout scripture, you would see a name uh, being used to, de to describe an actual person or all of the descendants of that person. And we see that here, right? Abraham, if you remember back in our early parts of Old Testament history, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Esau and Jacob. Jacob is often referred to as Israel, right? You've got Jacob the man and then Jacob the nation. Jacob the man, Israel the nation. The same thing uh, happens with Esau. Esau is also referred to as Edom. So in the same way that Israel means the man or the nation, Esau means the man or the nation, often called Edom. So when you see Edom, we're thinking about the descendants of Esau. Now, if you recall, if you remember, Esau was the older brother who had sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. That was Esau's story, right? Esau was the oldest. He was supposed to have this blessing. He was supposed to be the one through whom God would bless the nations. Uh, in theory, the oldest would always get the larger blessing. And so that was supposed to happen. But he sold his birthright because he was so hungry. And, and you know he had to be hungry because he sold his birthright for a soup made of lentils. I don't know if you had lentils, but there's nothing appealing about lentils. I would have done it for maybe some clam chowder or something, but he did it for lentils. He was willing to give away everything for some bland, nasty soup. If you like that soup, I'm gonna pray for your taste buds. Nothing good about some lentils. Might be healthy, but it's nothing good for my taste buds. But he had to be hungry and he gave that up. Esau, the firstborn, God had promised Abraham that the blessing of the world would come through his descendants. Remember, he had said, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And Esau was supposed to be the promised one. At least he thought so. But yet he didn't value the promises of God. So he sold it to his brother, his brother, Jacob. Now, it's interesting if you just look at the names here. Jacob, its, it's Greek counterpart is the word James. They both mean the same thing. They, they, uh, it actually means usurp, uh, the usurper or ambitious one. 
I've heard people make jokes like, after I learned that, I don't know if I'd ever want to name a kid Jacob or, <laughs> or James, because it means one who is so ambitious that they will usurp your authority in order to get what it is that they want. And we see that story with Jacob play out. He wanted what his brother had. So his, his older brother, he knew, his older brother didn't value what he had. So when Esau got hungry, he sold it for a bowl of soup. Now, this wouldn't really be realized. What's, what was going to happen wouldn't be realized for another 400 years. But Esau was hungry that afternoon. Esau didn't care about what was happening down the road. Why would I care about the future? I'm hungry now. You see that in Genesis 25. Why, why care about the future? Why care about what's coming? I want what I want right now. So this conflict between those two brothers, it continued long after this. So many years later, we see the same thing playing out in Moses. And Moses is leading God's people uh, into the promised land, out of the wilderness, and they start traveling through Edom. Centuries later, traveling through this country that originated from the descendants of Esau. And guess what the Edomites did? They would not let them pass, because that rivalry was strong. They would not let them pass. They made them walk around Edom. Even though they were cousin nations, they were family. They would not let them come through. So you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob, you've got Esau. Then hundreds of years later, you've got Moses and Edom. And then hundreds of years later, you've got Babylon who conquered Judah and their ally is Edom. Look at verses three and four. Your arrogant heart has deceived you, you who lived in clefts of the rock, in your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. One of the things that we see with this group of people in uh, Edom is that they were rock dwellers. They dwelt in the clefts of the rock. Now, what's so beautiful about this in many ways, if you just understand kind of the lay of the land here, when you get a chance, if you ever get a chance to visit the Middle East and in Palestine, and you get a chance to even skirt parts of Jordan, you will see there's a really well-known rock formation known as Petra, this incredible place that is, it, it just looks like it can't possibly be real. But when you see there's these incredible carvings, people have carved buildings and homes into the actual rocks that are there in Petra. It doesn't even look real and they're massive. So you'll see certain places where if you look at a picture, you just Google it now, you look at a picture and you'll see these massive structures and then it looks like tiny little people there because the people look so tiny compared to these incredible structures that are there. That is likely, it may not be exactly what we see now, but that is how the Edomites were living. That is a pretty safe place to live, isn't it? Who can overtake you when your home is in the mountain? Your home is in the rocks. People can't come and overtake you. You can have a lot of confidence during that time. You know, ultimately, the Edomites felt very safe because of where they were located. They were located in these powerful structures. You can't even attack that structure. The sense of security they had because they lived in the rocks. That's what Obadiah is referring to, right? Your arrogant heart has deceived you. You live in the clefts of the rock. You think that because you have, have good engineering skills and your homes seem impenetrable, you're trusting in that more than what it is God has called you to. That's what happens when we're arrogant and we deceive ourselves. We trust in our own cleverness and we overestimate 
our own cleverness and we underestimate our own sin. That's where they were. But not only were they overestimating their own abilities and their own uh, location and finding safety in that, they were overestimating and they felt really, really safe because they had good allies. Look at verses, uh, when, when you look at verse seven, look at what he says. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it in that day. Consider this. It's one thing to feel really, really safe because you've got a lot of people that seem to have your back until they stop having your back. It's one thing to feel strong because you've got treaties with powerful friends. That's what Edom did. They had relied on their allies. Edom saw themselves as wise people. They were protected by where they lived and how they had set themselves up. They were protected by people who would look after them whenever trouble came. The moment they felt really safe, the moment they felt really protected, they felt like they could almost do whatever they wanted or not act when they should because they were more concerned about the protection from people more so than the wrath of God. That's often where we can find ourselves. I'm not as worried about breaking God's heart. I just want to make sure I'm protected by really strong people. And that's where, that's where they found themselves, so they felt good. They felt like they were in, in a good place. And so this judgment that comes, we're, we're seeing this, the judgment that comes isn't even because of their pride per se. Their pride was on display. There's no question. Pride did to them what it does to us. It, it deceived them the way it deceives us so that we don't see judgment when it's coming. It was, it was actually not just their pride though. It was Edom's brotherly sibling violence. It was their sibling inaction. It was their refusal to care for family. How do we know this? Verses 10 through 14. You will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because violence done to your brother Jacob. This sibling violence that occurred. On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. You know what's interesting here? For us, we think that violence are only things that are volitional acts. But here, God defines violence as a failure to act when we should do so. That should hit us. A failure to act when we should do so. God says that is perpetrating violence against your image bearer, your fellow image bearer, against your brother and your sister. When your brother or your sister is in need, is in danger, is being attacked, when you do not act, you are a part of the violence that is perpetrated against them. That's what he says to them. He says, as they came in and destroyed your brother, you watched that happen, you are complicit with them. And not only did they watch it happen, but they gloated. First, he said, you stood aloof. That is such a big deal to me because sometimes when we don't act, when people, when people groups have been harmed, even in our own country, well, I, I didn't really know what was really happening there. I just kind of, I didn't really understand that all of that was happening there. That's an aloofness that almost feels intentional. It's like, you know, I, I didn't really care enough to dig into more to find out what was really happening. I had so many things going on in my life. This standing by and aloofness God says that will not protect you. You are still guilty. I'm reminded of uh, some of the stories that you hear about uh, some of the early indigenous people on this land. 
and some of the things that would happen on their reservations, some of the ways that people would just be taken, stolen, ripped away from families, kids taken away from families so that they could be assimilated and become Christianized so that they in turn would turn into really good citizens and we would be able to ultimately eradicate a large portion of indigenous people. And not only doing that to indigenous people, but then taking the land of indigenous people. It's almost like walking into someone's home, taking their home, putting up our own family pictures, singing our own song, God Bless America, singing our own song, This Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land, completely erasing the people who had been harmed. And then saying, we needed land. I didn't know what else we could do. I didn't know that, that I didn't know it was that bad. I didn't know that people were being stolen from other lands and brought here as well to work land that didn't belong to. I didn't know that it was that bad. Standing by innocently aloof. You know what God says? The blood is still on your hands. That's what God calls us to, to care about people so much so that we act when we're required to act. It's not just refraining from bad acts. It's engaging in good acts. That's a part of what it means to be a to be a family. That's what it means to establish tight family ties. And so Edom broke the law of sibling duty. Edom broke the law of sibling responsibility. There should be a natural brotherly and sisterly affection and solidarity, but they lacked it. That should be the case for us too. Beyond the bounds of national boundaries here, because we know in a theocratic nation, there are other implications here. But God's heart is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Any image bearer, we're supposed to care about them in such a way where we act and we feel a sense of familial duty, familial responsibility. There should be that natural solidarity there. And they didn't have it. They joined in rejecting Israel. They joined in rejecting Jacob. They rejected Israel, which meant they rejected God's people. Whenever you reject God's people, and I would say whenever you direct the very image of God in people, you reject God himself. And Edom acted like the godless. They acted like people that did not care, much like their forefather Esau, who sold his share in God. These folks sold their share in God. It's interesting because what God is showing you is when we sell out our fellow brother and sister, we sell out our shares in God. We sell out our shares in God's family. We're proving that we don't care about our family. This kind of love has always been important. This, this, this uh, familial love, this brotherly and sisterly love, always been important and has always been valued by cultures throughout history. Back in 1917, there was uh, this, this incredible organization that had been formed in Omaha, Nebraska. It's by uh, a Catholic priest named Father Edward Flanagan. It was a place where troubled, homeless, orphan boys could come for help. Eventually, in 1941, Father Flanagan was looking uh, at a magazine called The Messenger, and he came to this drawing of a boy carrying a much younger boy on his back. And the caption was, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. Father Flanagan thought the image and the phrase captured so much of the spirit of what he uh, wanted this, this, this organization to be, Boys Town. So he got permission and he commissioned a statue uh, with the drawing and this inscription that says, he ain't heavy, he ain't heavy, Father, he's my brother. 
And that statue and that phrase became the, the logo for Boys Town. Eventually, it ended up showing, uh, it eventually ended up saying, he ain't, uh, he ain't heavy, she ain't heavy. He's my brother and my sister. And they included brother, uh, boys and girls town. Uh, but the point of that was this idea that caring for someone else was always required for people who claim to love God. It was always required. So you can go and see Girls in Boys Town pictures of that right now, this logo where you've got a, a boy carrying a boy or a girl carrying a girl. And there was this picture that, that became a motto for this area. So much so it became a movie with Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney. I remember watching it with my mom called Boys Town. But not only that, that started even more of a movement. That phrase got picked up in the 60s and the 70s, became a hit song in the 70s, eventually recorded by tons of folks, covered by tons of folks called, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. One of my favorite versions is one of my favorite singers, Donny Hathaway. Check it out. It's a beautiful song. Here are the lyrics from this song. The road is long with many a winding turn that leads us to who knows where, who knows where. But I'm strong, strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. So on we go, his welfare is my concern. No burden is he to bear, we'll get there. For I know he would not encumber me. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. This song is still popular decades later. I've seen stories of people uh, singing these songs and at funerals, having time to remember family members that have passed, the deaths of siblings, singing these lyrics because of the fundamental, fundamental truth therein. This idea that we're called to bear and hold up one another and care for one another. Why? Why, why does this language uh, uh, resonate with us so much? Because we're born into families. Families have brothers, families have sisters, they have aunts, uncles, moms, dads, uh, grandparents. We are born into families. This familial love is the fundamental way in which we're supposed to live. And this was Edom's great crime. This, this lack of sibling love, instead a sibling rivalry and hatred of Jacob. The same hatred that we see uh, in Jacob and Esau is the same hatred we see of Cain and Abel. So Obadiah sees their sin, cast aside the way people see winners, right? He sees them as sinners. But then he also sees the judgment that will befall them. So Edom's judgment is pronounced by Obadiah. And it didn't look like they would be judged to anybody else except for Obadiah. Because again, if you use your eyes, it doesn't like anything bad's coming their way. They're fat, dumb, and happy, as they say. They've got everything they need. They've got money. They've got clothes. They've got provision. They've got friends, allies. They've got the Babylonian nation behind them. They're good. And yet Obadiah says, don't trust what your eyes are showing you. You need to listen to what God is saying. And what God says is judgment is coming upon you. God's vision. When judgment comes, what does he say? Nothing will be left of Edom. Everything. He uses language that says everything would be stolen. It's weird. The language that they use, it's funny, I think, the language that they use. They're like, man, if people were going to steal your grapes, they would at least leave some, right? In other words, it takes, uh, it takes intentionality to thoroughly clean you out if somebody's going to rob you. It takes real intention and a stick to 
in order to clean you all the way out. Listen, growing up where I grew up, we were broken into. It happened. Cars get broken into. Homes get broken into. I can remember, this makes me feel old, I can remember when microwaves came out. And I remember having a microwave. We were one of, I remember us getting this Panasonic microwave, and it was so cool, and all these theories. Mom would tell us not to stand in front of it because she thought cancer would pop out. But we would, we'd be so excited to be able to heat up things quickly and all of that. I remember we maybe had that thing for a couple of months. I remember coming home one day, back door kicked in. We had been robbed. Now, they didn't take everything, but they took a few things. They took some of the nice, whatever they thought were nicer electronics. And that microwave was gone. But they didn't take everything. I don't know how I would have felt if I had come home and everything was wiped out. Because that takes intentionality. That takes some planning. That takes some coordination. That takes a real sense of, I don't want you to have anything remaining in this house. This is what God says is going to happen to Edom. He says, your decimation is going to be so thorough that all the things you clung to, all the trinkets that you thought made you feel important, all the things that gave you security, all the things that gave you safety, they are being removed from you. You will have nothing. He says, then in verses five and six, you see that again, if these came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be, wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? That's his point. He's saying, this is more than just a few things that they want. They, everything that you have is going to be taken. Then he goes to their allies next. So he says, first, all the things you have, they're going to be gone. All the friends you have, verse seven, everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive you and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. In other words, he's saying, where are your friends now? That's what you're going to be asking yourself. Where are my friends? All those allies that you had, they're going to be driving you away. They are going to deceive you. All the things that you have, they'll come by and act like they're your friend. They will eat your bread. They will eat food with you. They will sit with you, smile in your face, and then set a trap beneath you. The nation that should have stuck up for its sibling, for its family, is going to be betrayed by its allies and by its friends. I think we all know this, right? How fickle are fair weather friends. This is no different than the friends we see in the prodigal son, right? His, his money was gone, his friends were gone. It's why it's hard for people who are successful and wealthy to often identify who their friends are. Because once you make it, quote unquote, once you make it, you have to wonder who are the people who are really there because they're friends with you versus what they can get from you. True friendship is often found in hardship. It's where loyalty and faithfulness and love are found. One of the great problems of coming into power, prosperity, influence, and importance is that the friends you trust are often the ones you had before you came into power and authority and prestige and place. The ones who were with you in the hard times are the ones you can trust. So if you become president, who in your cabinet do you really trust? Oftentimes it's the ones who knew you when you had nothing. You see, God is showing them the people that you thought were your friends were not. How do we know that? Because people who are truly your friends are not just going to be for the things you're for. They're going to be for the things God is for. 
So a true friend is going to go, hey, listen, all this laughing at what's happening to, to Israel right now, I don't think you need to be doing that. I'm your friend, and I love you enough to tell you that you ought not be doing that because God is displeased. See, that's what family and that's what friends should be about. It should be about not just co-signing all the things that you want to hear, not just deputizing you to do anything your heart desires, but a true friend should say, I love you enough that I want to keep pushing you into what God's best is for you. And God's best is not for you turning your back on your brother or on your sister. God's best for you is not turning your back on your neighbor. But that's not what these friends did. So these friends were like, as long as you're getting good things and I'm getting good things, we're friends. As long as you stop getting good things, we ain't friends no more. You're too heavy for me to carry because you're really not my brother. So Edom, then in verse 15, it's not just that even. So you lose your stuff and you lose your friends. And then you get to verse 15 and he says, for the day of the Lord is near against all the nations as you have done. It will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your head. This is this biblical view in a way of justice, right? But it's not this way of justice of like a bunch of individuals. God is saying any nation that refuses to look after and care for others, specifically those who should know better, those who claim, especially here, that know God or claim to be in relationship with God, God is saying, I'm wiping you out. God is saying, as great as you've been, I'm wiping you out. You know what that tells me? There is no nation on God's green earth that is impenetrable. There is no nation on God's green earth that is permanent because only God's kingdom is permanent. There's a lot of great, strong, uh, powerful nations in history, and there's little evidence of their people any longer because God's kingdom lasts. Everything else passes away. And so you've got uh, these folks, the uh, Edom, pretty much getting their just desserts. As you have done, it shall be done to you. You are part of these strong environments and you feel pretty strong and safe. You're going to be wiped out. God judging those who have mistreated others. That's a part of God's justice. God will always eventually judge those who have mistreated others. That's why he says the day of the Lord is near. Pastor Jen preached on this uh, a, a, a while ago that the day of the Lord can both be something really good and something really foreboding. Because if you are not walking with God well, the day of the Lord will not bode well for you. If you are in relationship with God, walking in repentance, not just walking in perfection, but walking in repentance, the day of the Lord will be a comfort for you. But the day of the Lord is not going to be a comfort for Edom here. The day of the Lord is near. What does that mean? Every nation will give an account. Edom rose against God. We see this throughout the Old Testament. We see nations rising against God and his people. And so what's going to happen to them? Verse 16, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. What is he saying? The people who rise up against me, eventually it will be as if they no longer existed. Now, what people will point out, even when you go and visit Jordan now, and they'll talk about some of the ancient, uh, ancient Edomites. There's no evidence of any Edomites everlasting past that. We have no records of any groups of people that can still tie their lineage to the Edomites. It is as if they have never existed. 
You won't find evidence any longer of people that are tied to Edom, people tied to Moab, people tied to the Hittites, completely wiped away because God is saying, I don't forget. It might seem like I'm late on according to your time, but I'm never late. I don't forget. And so in all those people that have been, again, remember, think about Israel at this time. They are completely taken over right now. They are completely in exile. They're enslaved. They don't even have their own nation any longer. They're being ruled by the Babylonians. And then God mentioned something in verse 17, just to remind them that he hasn't forgotten them. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossessed them. And he says, the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire and the house of Joseph, a burning flame, but the house of Esau will be stubble. All this language showing God is not only, it's interesting because what God is doing is he's showing, he's talking to really two groups of people, talking to those who have been uh, um, downtrodden, those who have been uh, overtaken, those who have been disenfranchised. He tells them, I am not forgetting you. I am not abandoning you. And then those who have done the disenfranchising, those who have done the downtrodding, those who have done the overtaking, he says, I have not forgotten you and you will be abandoned. God doesn't have a short memory. God holds on. And here's the thing. When we study these Old Testament prophets, it can be so common for us to skip over them because we just think that's just a bunch of angry God stuff. That's God with a temper. We look at the, these prophets and go, that's God with a temper. God gets mad. He's mad at people. He's angry. He just wants to come and bring swift justice and he wants to bring retribution. This is not really about an angry God. He's angry, but this is about a heartbroken God because God is a God of family. Remember, when we pray, how did Jesus tell us to pray? He didn't say, start with our king. Start with our judge. He didn't even say start with our God. He says, begin our father. Why? Because our God is a familial God. And so when a father sees his children harming each other, a father, more so than a king, a father is heartbroken. Because he's looking, you look at your children and you say, you've got my DNA. You should have my heart. And when I see you harming each other, you break my heart. So when you read these texts, don't just see this as more angry God stuff, more vengeful God stuff. See a heartbroken, hurt, mourning God. Because that's the heart we should have. A heartbroken, hurting Morning people. God is angry because God is hurt. I'm hurt that you would treat one another this way because it's a reflection of what you must think of me. And so he tells Edom, he tells Esau, you will be stubble. And then in verse 19, a lot of specific references to time, to that time that we're, we're not always certain of. But when you get to verse 21, this is to me the crux of the matter. He says, Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. Obadiah shared God's vision that the kingdom is truly the Lord's. Now, here's what's interesting about this whole story. Most scholars will acknowledge that no Edomites likely ever heard this message. Think about it. It's, it's a message that's communicated by this Jewish prophet 
Why would Edomites even be anywhere near and listening to a Jewish prophet? Most scholars will say this letter or this prophecy was never even declared publicly to be heard by Edomites. This really was heard by other Jews. It was addressed to Edomites in almost poetic fashion, right? It's like, if they were my audience, here's what would be said to them. If they had a heart and mind and ears and eyes to see and hear me and feel me, here's what they would hear from me. But they're so cold hearted, they probably won't even hear this anyway. But God is giving this message to remind the Jews, those who have been downtrodden, about where his heart still is. Hey, I'm still father. I still love you. Many of us, many of you have felt like, God, where are you? Lord, I didn't even do anything to deserve this and I'm going through really hard times. I've been hurt by people that were supposed to love me. I've been hurt by people that were supposed to advocate for me. I've been tricked. I've been done wrong. I've been deceived by people who were supposed to protect me. I've been harmed by the people that I trusted. I gave people the ability to harm me and trusted that they wouldn't and yet they did. And I'm watching them look like they're winning. Yes, God, I know that your grace reigns on the just and the unjust, but it just looks like the unjust get a lot more. And I'm mad and I'm hurting and I feel alone and I feel like no one's listening to me and I feel like no one hears me. and I feel like I'm speaking out into empty air. My words are going out into the ether and no one responds. God, where are you? What's happening? Why are they winning? And why am I losing? And God says, I will not abandon you. I am still holding you. My heart for your well-being, my heart for justice burns for you. And I am not done with you. This is what the Jews were hearing. This is what they were seeing. This is what they were being reminded of. That God is never abandoning his people. He's never abandoning his children. In the grand scheme of the biblical message of God's redemption of fallen humanity, this book of Obadiah can seem really of little importance. But this portion of that message, the portion of Obadiah that really shows up strong, this is tremendously vital. God is showing I am sovereign over every nation. I am sovereign over every person. I am sovereign over every circumstance. I am sovereign even over every heartbreak. I'm sovereign over every deception. I'm sovereign over everything that could possibly break your heart. I am still on the throne. I am still in control. And I never forget, even regardless of whether people acknowledge his sovereignty. God desires to show mercy and favor to the neighbor in times of distress. Treachery against a relative, treachery against an image bearer will be judged by the God of justice. God wants you to know that. God wants us to remember that, that I might not see it with my eyes because my eyes say winning looks like this. So God, my eyes tell me I'm losing and my eyes tell me you're letting me continue to lose. And God says, take on my vision. Put on my glasses for a moment because I am still bringing justice and I still hate injustice. You need to be reminded that God never forgets. Now listen to me. You need to be reminded 
that God never forgets. What does that mean? That means that for all of us, at different times, we find ourselves to be more the Jacob in this story, the Israel in this story. But at other times, we also have been Edom. We also have been Esau. There are times when we have loved uh, our image bearers like family, and there are times when we have not. There are times when we have advocated and acted to protect and acted to care for others, and there are times when we have not. And what God is saying is that on the times where you have been done wrong and you are in that uh, Israel place, that Jacob place, God is saying, I remember you, I will not abandon you. And the times when we are in that uh, family tiebreaker place, we're breaking those ties, we're, we're uh, uh, hurting and harming one another or not acting to defend, and we're in that Esau place of our lives, God says, I'm not, I'm not forgetting you. Now the joy, the beautiful thing is, unlike these folks, God is saying, I see you, you are breaking my heart, you are breaking my law, you are harming your brother or sister, and I give you time to repent because I want to bring you back because you're family, because you're my child. And so ultimately here, what God is showing is that my heart wants to see restoration. So if you are a rule breaker, if you are a covenant breaker, if you are a heartbreaker, God is saying, stop, be aware that I see you, that I will not forget this, but that I am calling you to restoration as well. I'm calling you to be back in the fold. That's why when Jesus came, Jesus came and he said he declared the kingdom now. What is he saying? Repent now because God never forgets. Take hope because God never forgets. Side with God even when it is inconvenient and even when it is uncomfortable. When Jesus came, people were waiting for a kingdom. They were waiting the way the Jews were waiting back in the times of Obadiah. They were waiting to be rescued. They were waiting to be, to be vindicated. They were waiting for something to, to make things right again. They wanted to win. They wanted to win. They wanted to look like winners. They didn't want to feel like losers anymore. So the contemporaries of Jesus were looking for retribution on the nations. They still weren't seeing the way Obadiah saw. They needed to see a spiritual kingdom. But they were still following Esau and not Jacob in that way. They were still just looking at what winning looked like for them. They wanted destruction of the nations. They rejected Jesus as true Messiah and they rejected God. They were like their uncle Esau. They were like the man who sold his inheritance for a single mill. They wanted to continue living in Palestine under Roman control rather than God's Messiah. Look, we often can be like Esau. Esau can only think of the now. He couldn't think of the future. He, he, he couldn't value a meal that he couldn't taste with his mouth. And we as well are people. We are individuals that do the same thing. The car, the job, the trip, the mortgage, the marriage, the security. They're all bowls of lentil soup for willing to give up our inheritance for wealth and individual freedom. We, 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 we find it's interesting because we are living in a time where we have loneliness and unhappiness and, 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 and depression formed obesity. Yet we continue to give up a great inheritance for the mighty dollar. We'll give up a great inheritance for some of the things that make us feel like we're winning. We'll give up a great inheritance of what it means to be a family in order to have the good life now. 
So we'll side with winners that offer quick lifestyles, promotions, fame, money. They offer the kingdom of this world now, but not the kingdom of Jesus. I'm reminded in, uh, in, in, in Hebrews 12, God calls us in many ways to be what's described here, to be the same, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the right, uh, right hand of God. And in that same chapter, you see that contrasted with Esau. Jesus is this means of faith, right? Jesus is actually showing his faith is assured for the things he hoped for, convinced of the things not seen. God is saying, and the and author of Hebrew is saying, side with, look at how God sides with Jerusalem. God has always sided with his people. He has never left them or forgotten them. Here's the interesting thing, though. The whole time for the people who were following uh, Jesus, you know how Jesus looked in the eyes of the Romans? You know how Jesus must have looked uh, during the time? What, what the conventional wisdom would have said winning looked like? Jesus would have looked like a loser during that time. Jesus would have looked stupid during that time, especially on the cross, which is why he was mocked, which is why he was scorned. See, ultimately, he's always tell, told us, stop using the conventions of this world to determine what winning is, to determine what glory should be, to determine what the weight should be. The God of Jerusalem is the God of the resurrection. He promised, he has promised us an inheritance. And he said this inheritance will not be lost. So it must never be devalued by those to whom it has been given. How do we devalue it? Has less to do with, let me make sure I value it by making sure I'm in my Bible, that's very important. Make sure that I'm praying, very important. All of that needs to happen so that we love each other better so that we care for each other better. If we do not love each other well, then we have sold our inheritance. If we do not love each other well, God says, I will never forget this. We have an inheritance that we hold to, and we need to live and act like those who have inherited something that should never be corrupted. So what are we called to do? We're called to hold on. If we're in a place where we're like, Lord, I don't know where you are. I don't know if I'm winning. I feel like I'm under attack. I feel like I don't have. I'm trying to follow you and things are happening. God says, hold on. Look to Jesus. If I find myself, God, I can, I'm, I'm feeling convicted and feeling guilty because I can see ways that I've not loved well. I've not cared well. I've not advocated well. I've not defended well. I've not protected well. He says, hold on. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Why? Because in, in either case, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. This is what it means to live like a family. We're a family that is not complete. We're not, we're not tied. Our, our love for each other is not contingent upon each other. Our love for each other is contingent upon the love God has for us. That's why Jesus said in closing, Jesus said when he when people asked and at, at first, when they asked him about what the most important uh, commandment was, and we know he said, love, you, love, love God and love your neighbor and, and love your neighbor uh, uh, as yourself. And later, he finally went to what we call the platinum rule, not just the golden rule, right? He said, a new commandment I give you. 
a new commandment that you, that you love your neighbor the way I have loved you. That's what we're called to. I'm not called to love you because of all the great things you've done for me. You're not called to love me because of whatever things I've done for you. If that happens, there will always be reasons to stop loving each other because we're not going to be perfect and we're going to be flat out wrong. But what we're called to do is love the way we have been loved. So if you find yourself downtrodden, be reminded of the way God still loves you and the things he promises to bring. If you find yourself in a place where you're not loving well, be reminded of the ways God has loved you and be convicted to the point where you're like, Lord, help change my heart so that I can love again. Call me out. Give me discomfort. Break my heart so that I can be in line with yours. Why? Because you're the founder of my faith and you are the perfecter of my faith. So enable me to love others the way you love us. Let's pray. Father, you love us. You call us to, to, to refer to you as our Father. You tell us not to pray like the hypocrites do. And in so doing, you tell us to call you Father, which implies that if we look at you as anything other than Father first, we are just performing. We're just acting. We are not loving. God, I pray that you would really give us a radical view of love. Give us your vision. Give us a vision that wants to love the neighbor well, to love like family. Lord, give us a deep discomfort in all the ways that we have broken family ties amongst our community, amongst our neighbors, amongst our fellow image bearers. God, I don't know what it looks like to mend those uh, broken areas. God, I don't know. Uh, you're not calling us to be manipulated. You're not calling us to be abused, but you're calling any of the ways in which we have contributed to the breakdown of relationships. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom on how to mend those, how to do the work of a reconciler. God, there's no better place than this where we see how love is truly not a noun, but a verb. Love is not in what you say, it's what you show. It's not in what you think, it's what you do. It's shown in what we do and what we don't do. So God, will you show us the things that we've not done that we ought to? And show us the things we're doing that we need to stop. Not so we can feel better about ourselves. Not so that we can uh, brag about what we have. Not so that we can look like winners, but so that we can love and love in a way that is imperfect, but love in a way that is being perfected by you. And we pray these things now in the name of the founder and the finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's receive this blessing, this final blessing from the founder, from the finisher, from the perfecter of our faith. Listen to the words again. We say it all the time because ultimately it is a reminder. It's a reminder of all the ways God is still for us. It's also a reminder of all the things he holds us accountable for. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's family said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below.
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.